Welcome to TGI, Tourism Geography Insights, the podcast of Tourism Geography's journal where we discuss our latest research and developments of our peer-reviewed journal which explores tourism and tourism-related areas of recreation and leisure studies from a geographic perspective. Good day to our listeners of Tourism Geographies. Today we have with us Mark Solaran. He's a lecturer in social policy at the University of Melbourne. He is the author of Tourism, Urbanization and the Evolving Periphery of the European Union. So recently, Max authored a publication around mobility guilt, digital nomads and COVID-19. So this is still relevant today as we speak to Mark, he's currently in New York and obviously um, doing a bit of a work um, over there. So I think he's a bit guilty of, of being a digital nomad in a sense. Um, welcome, Max. How are you? And could you tell us a little bit about yourself? I'm good. I'm originally from New York, but I've lived in Australia for six years. And mm-hmm. um, I feel a little bit guilty when I travel. One is the kind of uh, feeling that you're in one place and you should be in another place. And there's also the environmental guilt of getting on an airplane and um, feeling that you're burning up a lot of carbon. But uh, I came to this project through housing and the amazing cost that people are paying in large capital cities in rent or in repayment to their mortgages. And, you know, people really want to get away from that cost. Um, It's one thing that really weighs on people making that monthly payment of rent or, or their mortgage. And um, the pandemic was a moment where a lot of people who had aspired to work remotely or to be abroad when they have a job in one country but living somewhere else, they actually began to consider it more because people who were told that they had a job that was fixed and they had to go to the office, suddenly that became a lot more fluid. And employers became more generous with uh, letting people work remotely and people discovered there was a lot more possibilities for working remotely. And that came in many forms. That came in the ability to set up an office at home, to do things over Zoom, also sometimes to, you know, look at materials that they previously only had access to in the, in the workplace. So uh, things that were classified or things that have some kind of sensitivity, those forms of data were put online and um, and people got to work from their living rooms. Not everyone liked it, but I think people became very interested in the possibilities. Very interesting, especially seeing that you came from a big city such as New York, and you currently live in a big city, um, Melbourne. And you touched on some really interesting points around, you know, I guess uh, what in tourism there's that sort of buzzword around over tourism and could you talk a little bit about how that has probably sort of influenced your work as well yeah so you know there's a lot of places that have tourism development where um they've had generations of people coming there and that means cruise ships it means you know kind of beachfront tourism but huge numbers of people and so one thing that i've always been interested in is how places go from mass tourism to niche tourism. Because I think most places, they don't really want to have 
the kind of big model of, of, you know, let's get hundreds of thousands of people to lie on the beach and then to, you know, go to bars. They want something that's more lucrative. So they want, you know, the, the, the big thing that tourism economies are always looking for is fewer people spending more money. And so getting people in a place for longer can do that. Most budget model of like flop on the sand and, and get some sun and, you know, drink, drink a sangria to tourism that is much more focused on heritage, on culture, on uh, expensive culinary experiences. And um, part, of, part of what people want to do in municipalities that have had over tourism is get people uh, to come and, and uh, spend more time there. And that's a big thing too, because most tourism economies are basically seasonal. And if you can get people to be semi-permanent residents or stay longer, um, the, they'll support the, the economy more. Uh, there has been a move, not just with people realizing that they can work remotely, but municipalities that have a lot of tourism um, saying, hey, we're a place that can attract people to work remotely. Let's set up, you know, let's encourage uh, co-working spaces. Um, let's, you know, think about how we can get people to stay here for a few months. And potentially, you know, this is usually done on the city level in terms of governance, but they also cooperate frequently with national governments to say, how can we get someone here on a, for more than 90 days? Can we offer them a visa? Can we waive the fees they need to pay for a long-term residency? Um, can we uh, be more flexible with their employment? Um, can we see if they're, you know, the, the things that were keeping people away if, if they can fix that. So, you know, during the pandemic, you saw a number of places, a huge shift in offering remote work visas, um, literally dozens of countries embracing re remote work as something that would invigorate their tourism economies. And that was part of a moment during COVID where people who were in this tourism industry had the idea that, hey, maybe there's this huge possibility to get people working remotely, but also the existential crisis of no one knew how long the pandemic was gonna last. And there was a real feeling for a while that hotel companies and uh, cruise boats and other things might actually go bankrupt. Yeah, very interesting. And previous to my move here in Edinburgh, I lived in Brisbane. So I do appreciate um, that sense of remote workers looking for, I guess, a space or a, a geographical area or location that doesn't have as much um, restrictions in terms of, you know, having, you know, to social distance or to stay home in, in particular periods. Could you share a bit more in terms of even with your research, um, you know, you talk a lot about the geopolitics of how this actually impacted um, not just tourism, but the lives of, of people socially on the ground. Are there any specific elements that came out in your research? And you could probably give a, a good general overview of some of the key findings. But in particular, what were some of those social impacts, whether it be for the tourists as well as, as the residents? Yeah, it was interesting because during the pandemic, you had some people who were very frightened of COVID and didn't want to get it. And they really wanted to be in a place that was safe, that had uh, social distancing, that had access to vaccines, that had good quality hospitals. And you had other people who really resented the state for putting them through lockdowns and having all these new rules. So you did get people 
who were actually searching for more lax regulation. And that's something that you saw a lot in Europe, for instance, in, in places that had you know very strict rules. You would, you'd see people like leave Madrid to go to the Canary Islands, or they would leave the Netherlands to go to Portugal. That, that was one thing that was really surprising to me, which is people sort of looking for lax regulation and feeling like they had the mobility to do that. Of course, there's the people who, who, who um, were locked out of travel completely. So in Australia, you really couldn't go anywhere. If you left Australia, you would very much potentially not be able to come back for almost two years. If you came back, you'd have to pay about $3,000 to quarantine in a hotel. And it was a very difficult process. But not everywhere was like that. And some people, you know, chose to leave and to go to places uh, where they where they wouldn't be have these um, this burden of of staying home and having uh, tests and and you know doing PCR tests, um, so it, it changed people's relationship in the state in that way. There's also something where um, people really realized, okay, I have my computer, mm. I have everything online. You know, why don't I just go to a, a different country where it's cheaper, or go to a different city? And you have people who are leaving you know, to, to go somewhere more beautiful, to go somewhere more rural, and to go somewhere with more space, perhaps. Um, you know, in, in, my, in my interviews with people, you know, I interview people from all, all um, different countries. So there's tons of people from global North countries going to cheaper places. And it was funny because some of them had permission. They had carte blanche, basically. They could, as long as they, you know, logged into their email and they, they were working nine to five, they could go anywhere. Some need to keep the hours of their home country. And they did that in really interesting ways. So they would say, okay, I'm actually, you know, five time zones away, but I'll just stay up later at night. Um, and then some people actually didn't have permission, but it was a kind of negotiation with their employers. And so I talked to one guy and he was in Croatia and he said, yeah, you know, um, I'm from, I'm from Poland originally. And I, uh, I, I didn't get permission and people at work were, were kind of, um, they, I didn't tell them what I was doing. And they started, they said, wow, you know, your background in your Zoom calls just keeps changing. And he said, yeah, that's because I keep moving down the Dalmatian coast to different hotels. And they're like, oh, uh, are you allowed to do that? And he's like, no, I, you know, I didn't ask. He said, I didn't, want, I didn't ask because I didn't want to hear a no from people. But the, the real question I think in the future is going to be for employers, do you encourage this? Do you encourage people to work remotely? You can get rid of your office space, no more air conditioning bills. And you know, your employees can, can figure out uh, their own um, working lives. And then there's also, you know, so on one hand, it saves money. Um, and, and you can even perhaps pay people less. If you have an office in San Francisco and everyone, you know, moves to Cancun or something, you can say, okay, the salary that we once gave you, that was a San Francisco salary. And now you're a remote worker and your salary will be, will be reduced. Uh, on the other hand, there's some real questions about whether or not employees can exercise the same amount of worker discipline. Um, when their staffing is is remote, I think people are negotiating all of this in real time at the moment. Um, some people are are kind of trying to push the boundaries in doing this, but also you know this is something that for people who don't have a steady job and they don't have a, a one employer, this goes well with the the fragmented work lives that many people have. But the question is, if you know remote work or geo-arbitrage or um, location independence, whatever you want to call it, um, does that actually just add to people's precarity? So in some ways you have work precarity and you have living precarity. So the kind of dream of I'm just going to keep moving and moving and going to these different locations 
is that a dream or is that a nightmare? Is that because you can't afford an apartment in a big city? Um, and I think those are the questions that we should be asking now. Yeah, and you mentioned a lot around how people were rationalizing um, their choices. Were there any key themes that came out? And I know you sort of touched on one in terms of trying to lessen the living costs, especially during COVID, um, by probably moving to cheaper cities. Were there any others that came out? Mm, yeah, um, I think some people felt like this was a good time for them to see more of the world. I think people wanted to form new friendships and 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 meet other people in this community. So interestingly enough, you know, people are, um, you know, they're working remotely, but oftentimes they're doing so with other people. So people were very um, excited about going to places that had co-working spaces and, and sort of following a pathway of digital nomadism um, and meeting people in these different locations. Um, of course, you know, it's it's interesting because there's there's not that many locations. You talk to people who have been doing this for a few years and there's kind of like, you know, 10, 20 places that people go to frequently. And so on the other end of um, of these of, of these locations that have become sort of famous, whether it's Bali or Tulum in Mexico, Chiang Mai in Thailand, um, they really do need to worry about the quantity of people who are coming to their cities and particularly about housing competition with locals, which is that these people, you know, they may be getting a real deal compared to wherever they're from. They're from Stockholm, they're from London, but they're inflating the markets where they where they arrive to. And also some of the people who are digital nomads, they don't have a set job in their home country. So sometimes they're looking for opportunities wherever they end up. So the idea for governments is it's okay to have all these people because they're not competing in local economies. They have their own thing going on in their home country, but that's not necessarily true. A lot of the people who have been doing this for a while, they're now entrepreneurs. They're, they run a co-working space. They own a cafe, they own a restaurant, whatever. They own a small hotel. So they are involved in the um, local economies of the receiving countries. Mm -hmm. That's that's very interesting. You talked about as well mobility justice um, in your paper. Uh, do you want to share some insights around that and how that could actually impact in the future? Um, obviously, we kind of see the impacts of COVID dwindling away, but there's still stuff that are resurging, whether it's related to impacts of climate change or natural disasters. Are there any elements that you sort of uncovered or unpacked within that mobility justice of your underpinnings of your paper that still has um, some relevance, even moving towards the future of travel? Yeah, me and my co-author, Mallory Nodding, we were, um, we were always sort of surprised the language that people use. They always, they, frequently they would use a justice language about a borderless world, you know, no walls, no borders, no passports, free movement, but from a very elite perspective. So these are people who they they sometimes felt like their own mobility being curtailed during the pandemic was a real injustice. Um, but at the same time, they're people who have a lot of privilege. A lot of, they're very educated. Um, they have passports from um, from countries that are they're very powerful. They have the money to move, and you know they're. They're oftentimes seeking um, to spend less money, but they're going to places that also have real environmental problems that have, you know, a lot of these tourism destinations are in exactly the wrong places in terms of climate change. They're coastal places, they're island countries, 
um, and they have huge issues with possibility of sea rise, natural disasters, food sovereignty, a number of things. And so they're sometimes going to places where they will exacerbate the uh, local problems. And if, if this does, in fact, jump scales and become a really large scale thing, where you're not talking about, you know, 10, 20,000 people who are digital nomads, but you're talking about hundreds of thousands of people, um, there is the possibility that they're going to uh, go to places where their presence makes life harder for locals. Um, and there are, of course, examples, and particularly in the in the Asia-Pacific region, uh, region of um, places where tourism has, has been uh, ha has been felt very heavily, where, um, you know, you kind of destroy one beach and then you move on to the next one and then the next one, and the infrastructure never actually catches up with the people. So, you know, the, the question I think is, well, these people who are coming to places that are very beautiful, are those places actually ready to have more people? Yeah, that's interesting, especially, again, looking at the residents or the locals there, sometimes they don't even have access to some of these beaches or there's issues around water security and so forth. How does that framework of mobility justice, if you've probably um, had a chance to uncover that, fit into the way how it impacts um, residents in, in those elements? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's, um, people can be a bit flabbergasted when you see the incredible mobility on the elite end of things. So digital nomads, by definition, they're not really expats. They're people who are going to multiple countries. And sometimes those are multiple countries in a lot of different continents. So you'll meet someone who, you know, they were in Ecuador and then they were in Bali and then they were, you know, in Portugal. And for people who are more, who are locked in place by virtue of, um, of economics or by their passport or care obligations for another, a number of reasons, this is a really kind of a amazing um, phenomenon for them because they're seeing people with really heightened mobility who go around the world frequently. And um, yes, yeah, so I think there is a fair amount of resentment. You know, also, of course, these places are in locked in competition with each other. So, you know, in the Caribbean region, um, a number of countries, uh, Bahamas, Barbados, Trinidad and Tobago, a ton of places introduced these visas for digital nomads. But, um, you know, the, it, there is a question about whether this will be a race to the bottom because, you know, some places they they're, they do make money from visas, they do make money from, from um, foreign residents. And the question is, is it going to become such a fierce competition that mm. people actually can't get as much out of their foreign residents? Yeah, yeah. It's it's it's, it's a, a, a whole big area, I guess, that, that we could explore. Were there any specific elements that um, you felt this stream or this research agenda could probably go down a, a, a part to probably uncover other challenges that you probably weren't able to fit within the permits of your um, research paper? Oh yeah, there's so much. I mean, there's so much there. Mm -hmm. One thing I was really interested in is a lot of people I talked to have kind of white collar jobs. Mm -hmm. and so they're basically, they're, they're people who can work online. They have, you know, they're, they're pretty educated. They kind of work in tech or for a bank or, you know, they're a graphic designer. I was really, I'm really interested now in people who basically have blue collar jobs and they, and they save money and they live somewhere cheaper. And so, you know, you do find people who say, 
I hate my job. I hate work. And I'm just going to make money in them is save money and go somewhere. And so it's kind of, they're going in and out of the economy. And, and, you know, you used to see it 20 years ago, I particularly you'd see Australians who would come to Europe and they'd work in a bar or something in a hostel, mm. and then they would, they would travel with the money they made. Um, but, you know, what if we think about that as a more permanent arrangement? What if we think about people who work in a face-to-face service industry, for instance, and then they save money and they go live somewhere else? So that's one thing I'm quite interested in. Um, I'm also interested in these places that are, that are selling citizenship. Um, they're trying to incentivize uh, visas for remote workers, but really they're also, there's a, there's a flexibility with their sense of citizenship. So citizenship is increasingly disconnected from feelings of patriotism or being part of a national community. And it's something that's just much more transactional. And oftentimes you see that in countries that already experimented with lax banking regulations and with other things. And, and, and um, so there's a sort of trajectory that places have in, tor- in terms of how they see citizenship. But more and more, it's something about attracting new citizens um, and people feeling like, you know, citizenship is something pretty malleable. They can have a few passports, they can have a few different national identities during their lifetime. And their relationship with citizenship is much more one of what's the state going to give me? How much money do I have to have to join this country? Not something about linguistic or national culture. Yeah, very status driven, of course. I know you're written involved mostly around social um, policy, um, but just thinking around some of your research around urbanization and tourism and geography, obviously, um, are there any specific uh, research pathways you would like to head down? Are there any specific researchers in the tourism and geography space that you think you would like to to work with? Mm, That's a good question. I mean, really interested in in the um the ways in which tourism geography and the kind of future of work thinking go together so um you know how what's it mean to be location independent and i think people who are looking at um the workplace are are very interested in this and there's a couple of big questions one is you know how does bringing work back into the home affect people's care work how does it affect uh gender um relationships and, and imbalances in, in care work that's often split by gender. I think that's a that's a big focus I would like to look at. What's it mean after a hundred years of really trying to separate the office and the home to bring work back into the home? And what does that mean for people's caring responsibilities? I think that there's a lot of um positive things, you know, mm-hmm. having have, being able to to work in your living room perhaps has a new sort of relationship to multi-generational families, to care work. At the same time, you know, I don't think anyone wants to live in the world where you're sending emails at 9.30 at night, but it seems mm-hmm. like we're going that way. So how do we control that? How do we have a life where, where work is, is not kind of invading into our family or personal spaces? Um, so I think that there's really interesting, I think there's some really interesting feminist scholars who are working on that and who are asking questions about the future of work. And uh, it's not really a field I know that much about, but I really want to know more. And I, I think I've sort of scratched a little bit of it with some of the things I'm doing now in tourism, but it's um, something I'd like to pay a lot more attention to. Yeah, and it's it's a big space. And obviously, even within Australia, I know there's a, a very heightened focus around accessibility. Um, I think some 
federal government are actually putting that on the forefront in terms of accessibility and tourism as the year of accessibility, for instance, in Queensland. Um, so there's definitely a lot of space around how, obviously, mobility and working from home could actually impact or be some sort of benefit um, for care work in that regard. So we're going to switch it up a bit. I think within uh, tourism geographies, we like to obviously bring that human side of our research together. So we have actually asked our last interviewee a question that they would have um, for you. And the question is, how do you connect your teaching with your research? Yeah, um, I mean, I do a lot of teaching about housing policy and all my <laughs> students are really struggling because the rents in Australia uh, have gone insane and um, you know it's becoming a really hard place to live and I actually noticed that a lot of students during the pandemic who were they were learning on zoom and they weren't coming into the class that some of them have actually kept on zoom and some of that's because they're you know they have kids or they you know they have a, a part-time job but talking to some other students it's interesting because you know, there they said it's just such a long commute from where I live. You know, it's great that University of Melbourne is in the central location, but that central location is nowhere near my house, and I don't want to pay for the train, and I don't want to sit on the train for an hour. Um, so that was that's one thing about the the housing role is, is really big, and it's really visceral for people at the moment to talk about housing affordability. So mm -hmm. um, that I have no problem talking about housing affordability now, whereas I think t 10 years ago, it was like, okay, it was a little bit niche. But yeah, that's something I, I always, I connect to my, um, to my teaching. Yeah, I think housing and tourism um, have, sometimes they go hand in hand because everyone has this moment when they stay in a hotel or they're on holiday or they're visiting someone where they sort of see, oh, this is like how, how it is to live in a different way and to get them out of their 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 own little world, their own home. Yeah. And um, I think it kind of gives a, a perspectival shift that's useful. Yeah, and, th and that, that's a good connection because, again, coming from both Melbourne and New York, you definitely would appreciate the impacts, not just from the tourism perspective, but I guess from that urban development perspective around gentrification and how that actually impacts or shapes a, a specific area. So I, I really appreciate you sharing that. So what I would ask now is, um, do you have two questions? Do you have any advice for other scholars, especially um, seeing that you come from sort of a multidisciplinary perspective? Um, do you have any specific advice for upcoming scholars, PhD students, early career researchers? I guess my advice, it's very simple, but just to to keep writing and to to find some writing that you love and do it frequently. I um, started writing book reviews when I was in graduate school. And I found that a really good way to kind of keep up with what people were publishing and also just to kind of like do a little bit of like writing exercise. You know, I feel like you kind of atrophy if you don't write every week or something. And that was something that was really important for me because I found writing really terrifying. And, you know, if you just wait to write once a month or something, I think it kind of goes away. So. I find it really useful just to write every week and to write something, you know, a little bit outside, like write book reviews, write, um, you know, short articles and just to do it on a frequent basis. Uh, otherwise mm -hmm. it gets a little scary because then it's something you, you only look at 
when you're trying to write articles and it gets yeah it gets intimidating yeah definitely it's like riding a bicycle because you have yeah. to get your head back in that mind space and yeah. it takes probably two days and then you know so yeah it's, it's a cycle for sure and now that we're sort of finalizing my second question is just for you to leave a question for the other um interviewer interview sorry is there anything you would like to learn or you would like to ask um another potential I researcher? guess you know I think that something I would like to ask is um when you talk to someone who's about to take a holiday and they say you know what's a responsible what's responsible tourism what do you tell them you know it's someone who says you're a tourism researcher what's uh what's a responsible vacation look like and I, I want to ask someone that question because I have no idea what the answer is. So I want someone else to answer it because I don't think I have a good answer for it. <laughs> yes, and I'm sure if I ask 10 people, they'll have 10 different answers. Yeah, yeah, I don't even <laughs> think I have one answer for that. So. <laughs> thank you so much, Max. And thank I you. do hope pleasure. you enjoy. Yeah, yes. thank you so much. Enjoy your responsible vacation in New York and thank safe you. travels back to Australia. Take Thanks care. So Bye. Much. Take care. Great. Bye.